0: This is Dr. Michael Redler, special guest host of The Ortho Show today. We had a great time changing up the roster a little bit. That's right. The FRO, Dr. Scott Sigmund, is now the guest. We have a great show for you today. We talk about NAPS, we talk about orthopreneurship, and we talk about private equity. There's so much to be learned from the one and only FRO.
1: This episode of the Ortho Show podcast is brought to you by ModMed. Envisioning a world where the orthopedic software we build increases practice success and improves patient outcomes. ModMed offers an intelligent ortho-specific cloud platform of healthcare IT solutions that help surgeons and staff save time, drive efficiency, and elevate patient experiences. To learn more and see a demo of the number one EHR system, EMMA, as well as practice management, revenue cycle management, analytics, patient engagement tools and more visit modmed.com slash orthopod that's modmed.com slash orthopod modmed it's about time
0: from medical
1: media this is the auto show
0: Hello, world. This is actually Dr. Michael Redler, not the world-famous Dr. Scott Sigmund. And I have the unique opportunity today to turn the table, to sit in a different chair, get to know the man, the legend, the guy with his own hashtag, the illustrious Dr. Scott Sigmund. Scott, thank you uh, so much for joining us today. And and I know that you're, you're back in the closet but you're wearing a different hat today. And I'm thrilled that we're going to get to learn a little bit more about you.
1: Man, Redlers in the house. I'm so excited. You're going to be driving the car today. I get to sit back and relax and just sort of um, and be on the other side. So I've got no whiteboard. It's all yours, my brother. Tell me where you want to go, and I'm just thrilled to be here with you.
0: Well, listen, I, I, I appreciate it. And And for those of you who don't know, preparing to host a podcast is a lot of work. And and, uh, fortunately, I have done a little bit of homework. And so I'd like to introduce Dr. Scott Sigmund. Many of you know him, but perhaps a lot of you don't know all about him. He is a partner with the Orthopedic Associates of Lowell. He's functioned as the U.S. physician for the U.S. ski jump team, the University of Massachusetts Lowell teams, which I believe are the Riverhawks.
1: That is correct.
0: He's actually was an athlete. He He played varsity lacrosse at Tufts. He played lacrosse and football back in high school. He uh, graduated cum laude from the University of Maryland School of Medicine, the Terrapins, I believe. He did his residency at Tufts and did such a great job there that he then was accepted and did his fellowship at Curlin Joe. You know, Scott has become so respected around the world. He's actually now a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland. He's the host of the Ortho Show. He is the impetus and the driving force behind Ortho Laser. He is the original opioid sparing surgeon. Just listen to him tell you about it, but actually, it's true. <laughs> and, and, and little known, he's actually an actor in movies and a consultant in <laughs> the world of orthopedic technology. So, Scott, you know that took me a long time just to get through that resume. And I'm, and I'm
1: so impressed. Well,
0: and and, and and the reality is, how in God's name do you find time to do all that? What is your source of energy? What is your source of drive?
1: Well, that's a great question, Mike. I mean, I just feel like uh, you know, for 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 the two of us, we share we share a lot of, of of similarities, right? We've been doing this for a long time. We've gained a lot of knowledge over the years. And I feel like it's something that I have to do to be able to pay back, to give back, to be able to take all the lessons that I've learned, to be able to try and share that with as many people as possible. So I love taking care of my patients, but I also love all this other stuff, too. So I go to bed early and I rise early. Mm -hmm. I get my Peloton done in the morning and uh, I do my best to try and get as many things done in a day.
0: You know, he's not kidding when he talks about Peloton because it's not infrequent to get an early morning text from the fro, which <laughs> may give us some great piece of information, but also lets us know what his standing is in terms of the Peloton endurance. Are you still up in the top standings there? Because that's the, I know our audience wants to know that.
1: Well, you know, I'm usually usually in the top 20 for the individual event that I'm doing at that moment, but not certainly in the top 20 for the overall, you know, 20,000 people that may have ridden on a given day. But I'm still holding my own. I'm doing pretty good out there.
0: You know, I think that if you speak to our audience for a second, what you do in terms of teaching, what you do in terms of entrepreneurship, and we'll talk a little bit about that, and what you do in terms of being able to consult industry and take great care of your patients, seems like it would take every minute of every day. How do you find balance? I mean, you've got this wonderful wife, Sandy. You've got three sons, 2 stepsons. you You're very involved with their family. How do you make it all work? Teach us how we can all do that better.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's efficiency, it's planning, it's knowing your calendar. Like I, I don't have any problem, you know, doing a phone call with somebody at six forty-five on the way into work as I'm sipping my coffee. I don't have a problem setting up a meeting at eleven fifteen after I'm done my last patient in the morning uh, before I need my downtime. And believe it or not, Michael, I take a twenty-minute nap basically every day that I can. Now, on the OR days, it's hard to do, but if I'm in the office. Uh, I like to shut the door, close my eyes for 20 minutes, get caught back up, and then I can go ahead and uh, and go on. But I think really what it is, is really trying to, to be as efficient as possible with all of the tasks that you do and set reasonable goals. Uh, I love my wife, and she writes down a list, and I watch her list every day, and three or four things get get moved off, but another four or five things get on, and it still never seems to go away. I believe in in getting an email and answering the email. Getting a text, answering the text, because I know in my crazy schedule, there's no way I'm going to remember to do it if I don't. Okay, so
0: first key fact of the day, the fro takes a nap, you know, <laughs> and, and listen, you know, a power nap apparently can do wonderful things. So Scott, tell me a little bit, and, and, and these days, I'm not even sure, should we, I've heard Scott, I've heard Siggy, I've heard the fro, what, what do you actually like to be called?
1: Uh, you know, it depends on who's calling me. I guess is really what it comes down to. People have, you know, really sort of developed their their relationship with me over time, and the Siggy thing has been with me forever. Uh, the Fro has really just been something that's developed over the last five or six years or so, uh, and so it just depends on what part of your life that that I uh, that I relate to from you. But I'll I'll answer to most things as long as you're reasonably and not yelling at me <laughs> for sure. Okay, well <laughs> we
0: we know our parameters. So listen. Being an orthopedic surgeon for you, I think, has been a long-term goal. I know you grew up in Baltimore. I know you played football and lacrosse there. Your dad was a chemical engineer from MIT. Your mom, Judy, was a headhunter. This was a great background. When and when did you decide to become an orthopedic surgeon, and what was your driving force?
1: Well, first and foremost, I mean, I, I... I was a very fortunate, you know, young man in, in the world in which I grew. My parents were, you know, devoted to, to me and the education for me, you know, I did not go for wanting for the things that were required for me to be able to do well. And, and so I was in a, in a, an environment where I almost had to succeed. If I didn't, then it was on me. I mean, I was in a, in a place where so many things were provided for me. So I'm thrilled and, and so proud to have been able to accomplish these things from, With the gift that my parents provided for me to to be able to do so so that obligation is fulfilled and, and really happy to do so but it was about 10th grade it was in 10th grade I basically injured my knee and there were like three or four orthopedic surgeons that lived in the community, I went and saw one and I'm like this is awesome I'm playing lacrosse Larry Becker who was one of my mentors. Basically, was a great lacrosse player for Hopkins, and he was the sports medicine orthopedic surgeon in the area. And then there was Jerry Reichmeister, and they were these are just great people with great families. They looked like they really were loving their jobs. And I said, "That's it. I'm going to be a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon in tenth grade," and here I am.
0: Well, obviously, there was great foreshadowing there. So you go on to Tufts University, you play lacrosse there. And the rumor is it you got an early acceptance to medical school at University of Maryland your junior year.
1: You no, know, Michael, this is really impressive. I got to tell you, man, you're digging deep. Do you know what my app cards were by any chance? I mean, this is you know, really impressive. I, I,
0: I think that uh, they were probably eight, nine. And, and the reality is, uh, much like uh, I used to say about my daughter, Dr. Lauren Redler, you probably asked for a second opinion at that
1: point. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I got to tell you one funny story. You, I think you'll appreciate this. So yeah, I played lacrosse. And I didn't pick up lacrosse until 11th grade. And uh, I was the the starting halfback for the football team and the, the, lacrosse coach was my geometry coach and he said you got to come out and play and I said fine I did I took a summer thing and I learned it I got pretty good at it it was good enough out of Baltimore that I was able to play at Tufts but in my junior year I think is when I received the award I I won the MUJP award award, which was the most useless Jewish player award for the for the men's lacrosse team at, at Tufts University but our team has become much better since then uh, literally, I mean, we've won four or five uh, uh, NCAA Division Three championships now. So the program at Tufts is really amazing. And I donate to it routinely. I've had a number of their athletes come and spend time with me in the in the office who have also thought about uh, thinking about orthopedics. So always giving back there as well.
0: So essentially, what we can say is that you're a former jumbo athlete now paying it forward.
1: There you go. I like that very okay. much.
0: So look, so you, you have a great undergrad career. You go on to Medical School at University of Maryland, where we know that, uh, you know, you have to digest, learn and give back a lot of material. Now, it, it seems that, I'll, that I've heard that you may have had an unusual place for doing your studying. And, and, and I had to look this up, Scott, because I said, because you know, that's going back a number of years ago. It turns out there was a little bar, a tavern in Baltimore called The Horse You Came In On Saloon. Does that ring a bell? And and, and can you tell us, was that part of the secret of your success?
1: Yeah. So Missy, the bartender actually was the one that was most responsible for us getting through medical school. So as you recall, right, they give you the New York telephone book on Friday to memorize for the test on Monday. Uh, and so at Monday nights were the night we would go out and then, uh, they give you the LA phone book to memorize for the following week. So we didn't go out during the daytime, but we, but we were on the weekends. We went out on Monday night, Missy was there. There was always this one guy that was, that was playing there for us. And, uh, Yeah, no, the horseshoe came in on, I do believe it's still there. And so you can go visit. I'm not sure that Missy's there anymore, but it was a great four years of medical school.
0: And and I guess from what I understand, the big question is, is Sabatino still there for the really late time meals?
1: <laughs> Sabatino's is still there, and I, were, I recommend getting the half bookmaker salad, which is absolutely outstanding, and the linguini with white clam sauce, especially at three in the morning. So you are once again, Mike, you Michael, you are just hitting it out of the park with my past history. I'm very impressed.
0: Well, listen, it, the inquiring minds want to know, and 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 that's the reality here. Uh, so listen, you finish your residency at Tufts. You 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 have some co residents or some mm-hmm. fabulous people there, and, and I actually had a chance to talk to one of your fellow residents. He actually is the official fact checker <laughs> of the Ortho Show, uh, Dr. Bill Levine, who is the illustrious chairman of Columbia University uh, uh, Department of Orthopedics, where my uh, daughter is attending. But Bill told me back in the day. You you guys were thick as thieves.
1: I will say this about Bill Levine. One of the really nice stories that I'll share is that the two of us were you know co chief residents together, and uh, it was time for fellowship. And for somehow some way, we both decided we were going to do sports. And and then Bill wasn't sure if he's going to do a sports fellowship or a shoulder fellowship. And we both wound up. Interviewing at the and Job Orthopedic Clinic, and there's no way that KJOP was going to take two uh, Tufts residents in the same year for fellowship. So my my and Job fellowship uh, uh, spot was directly related to the fact that Bill Levine was such a mensch that he decided that he was going to go in the shoulder and took the uh, the Columbia fellowship, which opened the door for me to go to and Job, and here we are.
0: Well, that's a great story, and uh, you know I think that he still thinks the world of you. And uh, what he did want to let me know about, you know, that New Orleans and Bourbon Street. So let's let's fast forward a little bit here. You know, you've introduced yourself for years as the original opioid sparing surgeon, And, and I want to tell you that that my passion for opioid sparing surgeons started with a talk I saw you give years ago. When afterwards we became fast friends, but you were instrumental in building up that passion. Uh, you're the healer of knees right and left. But, uh, the, but then you, you've done so many other things. And, and a couple of things that we want to talk a little bit about is, is that one, you know, you've now come up with and are now found worth a laser. And, and you felt it was born from opioid sparing. But, but the reality is, that's a challenging thing. That's going against the tide. And, uh, you know, one of the things that um, I had a discussion with Matthew Ray Scott about is that innovation requires courage. And you have shown that. But tell us about those early days of, of trying to get through ortho laser. What was the response to the medical community and, and how has the AAOS updates on opioid prescribing helped your cause?
1: Yeah, you know, if you listen to Guy Raz's uh, podcast, which I'm a big fan of for how I built this, and he interviews, you know, the CEOs and founders of these companies that have gone on to, to really become greatness, every single entrepreneur pretty much tells a very similar story, which is, it is uphill at first, if you truly have an idea that's going to be different, that's going to be unique, that's going to allow success in a business model that wasn't there before most people are going to look at you and tell you it's probably not a good idea and and you know laser it was not taught in our medical school curriculums and it was really as you absolutely pointed out was born out of my desire to create opioid sparing alternatives and um but i did my research and i believed you know i went to italy twice and i met with you know the leading cellular biologist monica monachi at the university of florence and really spent the time and energy to dive deep on the research of this. And I, and I really believed in the, in the concept and the technology, despite not having been taught to us in our medical school curriculums, but it was, you know, it was rotten tomatoes everywhere. I mean, it didn't matter where I was going. People were like, you're a snake oil salesman. You know, you're just, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're just selling stuff. You're taking advantage of patients. There's no science behind this. Show me the RCTs. And, and really at the end of the day, there was a lot of literature support for laser in the basic science and even in the clinical space as well. And so, you know, as I'm plodding along and we're starting to get to gain some traction, we had COVID and then the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery for the first time in a a number of years came up with new adopted guidelines for the treatment of osteoarthritis. And they did a deep dive in the research and we made the list on the recommended list. Now, people say even from there, well, you're low on the recommended list. I say, well, we're higher than BISCO number one. And number two, if you really read what they say, they say there's a couple things that there needs to be more research. And we agree with that. And the second thing they said is that there's a limited availability. And I said, well, we're working on that too. So, you know, it's all good. And then the CDC about six weeks ago for the first time in five years came out with new revised guidelines on the recommended prescribing of opioids. And not only did they give prescriptive guidelines on opioids, but they strongly recommended alternative options and laser Uh, also made the list from the CDC at this point on the recommended list for a uh, non-opioid, non-pharma alternative treatment. And that was based on the literature support as well. So again, those are proposed guidelines. We're just about through the commentary period at this point, and they'll be out most likely as real guidelines probably in October or so. But the legitimacy of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery and the CDC really has allowed me to stand tall knowing that the time and the energy that we put into this project really is going to pan out. And we've had a lot more uh, engagement now with physicians across the country who are interested.
0: Well, listen, it's an inspiring story. I I think that uh, many of us may have shuddered away when the criticism was at first strong. You held your position and now you've got some great backing to the fact that this is a great alternative and another great opioid sparing alternative. So it was a great, not only business decision, but it was also a great patient care decision. Now, speaking of business decisions, I know that recently your practice has gotten involved in private equity, and there was a purchase of your practice. And listen, that's a hot topic these days. It's, it's something that uh, generally uh, physicians are a little afraid of to have businessmen have a greater control or involvement in their practice. They always like to be their own bosses, and yet. You're a smart guy, you're a great businessman and this was the best decision for you and your practice. How did you come to that decision?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was really it was it was really about the pressures that were happening around us in the Massachusetts community in particular. Uh, you know the Brigham and Mass General put together this two billion dollar package where they wanted to pop down ASCs and outpatient centers directly adjacent to other outpatient centers that already existed and we're trying to tell the rest of the world that we're going to save money by doing this. But really what they saw was the writing on the wall that ASCs and outpatient work is really where people want to go these days. But so tremendous pressures from hospitals, tremendous pressure from commercial payers to ratchet things down. Blue Cross Blue Shield, for example, is no longer paying us for the professional component of reading an x-ray in the office. They say, that's no longer something that we want to pay for. We expect you to do it for free. Every year we hear about CMS that's going to ratchet down our, our, our fee payment, our fee schedule moving forwards. And so it, we felt tremendous pressures. We had survived and done very well as a clinical practice for for 30, 35 years. But just the writing on the wall and the foundation in which healthcare was being delivered was really creating pressures. And we decided that we wanted to be with other like-minded orthopedic groups that were doing great work. We also wanted to have some financial capital backing us so that if we wanted to expand our business, if we wanted to go into a different area or add ancillary services, that we would have the capabilities of doing so. And so, you know, it is orthopedics is the super hot topic in private equity right now. I was on a panel at the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery, uh, and the, you know, the it was sold out with the people in the room wanting to hear and know about this. And then, of course, we had COVID come through. And as we all know, you know, the recession proof medical practice uh is not gonna ever have to worry about recessions. Well, there are a lot of practices that shut down after COVID. So a lot of these practices are very interested in the idea of partnering with other like-minded individuals and that it wasn't easy. i got to tell you, man, it's like uh, we spent months and energy and 12 orthopedic surgeons in a room trying to decide anything is nearly impossible, you know, but at the end of the day, we thought about what was going to be best for us in a long-term strategy. And that's what we chose.
0: And, And do you still feel like you're the captain of your ship?
1: Yeah. You know, I joke around about it so far. The only thing that's really dramatically changed uh, is the fact that I have to pay for my own lunch. So so it used to be that we would pay for lunch for everybody every day. It's what we did. But now it's an out-of-pocket expense for us. But no, in, in all reality, you know the, the, there's no such thing as the corporate practice of medicine in the state of Massachusetts. Now, some states allow it to happen. So what does that mean? It means that these companies can't come in and tell you what to do clinically. And and really, literally, right within the letter of intent, which I strongly recommend to anybody that's listening out there that's considering private equity, is do not sign a letter of intent without having attorney evaluation or recommendation uh, before you make any indication about moving on and, and developing a relationship with private equity. But in there, it says very specifically, past practice. You're going to be able to do what you were doing in past practice. These private equity groups want to continue to make money, and they want the doctors to be the ones to continue to generate the business that they're doing. And if you create environments in which you're putting pressure on them, and they can't do their job, then ultimately, they're not going to be making money either. So as far as the four months of clinical practice that we've been in, still only four months, uh, where it's been it's been business as usual, there hasn't been any changes in the clinical decision making on a day to day basis for my individual patients. So
0: you, you present what is a very attractive picture. And, and I know that orthopedic surgeons around the country are are sort of stroking their chin and saying, hmm, is this a right fit for us? And, and one of the challenges that sometimes comes up, what about the young guys in the group as opposed to the older guys? And, and also if a private equity gets in, what's their exit strategy? What, what is their ultimate goal? Are they just going to be in partnership with you forever or are they going to try and turn it over?
1: Yeah, so let's talk about the young kids first. So we had two two uh, orthopedic surgeons that joined us within six months of us uh, going on onto this deal, and and the group that we joined with with Spire Orthopedics in particular, they are all about everybody being all in. So we had conversations with these two individuals that uh, they were going to be receiving you know, a six-figure check that had nothing to do with any of the previous discussions that we had with them as far as their partnership agreement. The partnership agreement that they signed with us for two years was honored as is, was not changed whatsoever. They got a significant cash settlement, which they had no idea they were going to be getting when they signed up. And they got a rollover equity position into the new animal moving forwards as well. So they were very pleased to be able to be a part of this. Now, the argument continues for the younger individuals. Let's say you're the younger partner. You've been a partner now for two or three years. Why do I want to do this? You know, sure, the older guys, they get this balloon package and they can, you know, walk into the sunset and they're all happy. But at the end of the day, if you take a look at the successful industry with an ophthalmology, dentist, dentistry, et cetera, there's multiple turnovers as to how this works. And so every three to five years, Uh, If you're doing well and you've been successful, another private equity group will come in and another liquidity event happens for those individuals. So the older surgeons may have one, maybe two liquidity events. The younger people may have four or five liquidity events over their lifetime, which is really generating revenue that they had no idea they could generate previously. Now, let's talk about what happens, right? At the end of the day, the private equity group wants to make their money. They paid a certain amount of money. They have a number in mind, and when they feel that the business has gotten to where it's supposed to be, they're going to exit. There's no question about it. The private equity side will exit at one point or another. But what happens is the the group, the MSO, which we again call Spire Orthopedics, that management group will stay because they're going to want to continue to have increased uh, revenue and have a second, third, or fourth bite of the apple as well. And then what also stays is the contract that you sign with that private equity group to begin with as to how medical care is going to be delivered. That package is sold as it moves down. So the next group isn't going to come in and say, we're taking away your nurse practitioner, you need to come in and see another, you know, 50 patients in a week. uh, And, you know, we're taking away vacation. That's not how it works. It's dialed in, and it stays in as you move from one equity investor to another.
0: Well, that certainly sounds compelling. And and listen, your track record in terms of the business of medicine is really unparalleled. And, and, you know, in in terms of uh, researching a little bit, you for this episode, because listen, when I'm the guest host, I, I've got big shoes to fill and, 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 and it, it was a challenging, it was a daunting task. So I did get a chance to speak to Matthew Ray Scott, also better known on LinkedIn as The Beard. And, and in typical Matthew Ray Scott fashion, I posed some questions to him and he sent me a video back of his answers. <laughs> uh, and, and one of the things we talked a little bit about was the whole concept of, of you know, the crippling of the population with opioids, the start of ortholaser, and, 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 and the concept of orthopreneurship. So I'm not sure that term is in Merriam-Webster dictionary yet. I think if anybody can get it in, it's probably the beard and the fro, but how did that concept come about? And, and, and just for our listeners who may be less familiar with that term, what does it really mean?
1: Yeah, so this was totally coined by by Matthew Ray Scott, OrthoLaser. We hired him in the feed agency to be our marketing uh, and branding guru. And and he literally just just came up to us one day and said, I just made this term up and I love it. And I really, you know, it fits well because, (laughs) you know, at the end of the day, you know, yeah, orthopedic surgeons, we take care of our patients. But you know when you've gained when you've gained uh, a certain amount of knowledge and you become a master of the things that you do, people seek you out right and so, for example, Dr. Redler, you do a number of consulting gigs for people that are are really interested in your opinion within medical device space as well, and so from that, you develop relationships and then you you know can you develop you know into a business Danny goyle of precision o s Mike Grywe of uh ortho live you know we've had a number of these people that are, that are on jared Parvizi, who has his barbie in- innovation so so you you sort of parlay your experience and your wisdom into relationships in which people want to share that information and then hopefully you can develop a new concept or idea make a business and succeed
0: so listen you're an inspiration to all of us your energy is seems boundless in nature you know, I've seen you with the headbands of ortho laser. You you've got the the branding down pat. I understand you've also got you know a little room left on your left sleeve, you know, for additional branding. And and I I want to venture to say, has NetJets reached out to you yet?
1: <laughs> yeah, my NASCAR jacket that everybody knows before as I stroll as I stroll up and down the floors of Academy and all the others. The, uh, the sleeves are still open. I have not been approached by NetJets, but if NetJets is listening, I am more than happy to start that conversation.
0: Well, I, I think if they're not listening, they will be soon because, I mean, the value of having their name on your shirt may be just tremendous. So listen, you've been a successful orthopedic surgeon. Your teaching videos are watched worldwide. You're a friend of industry. You're an innovator and you found, help found Ortholaser. Fast forward for us. You're a busy guy. And apparently it's got to be more than just a 20-minute nap that keeps you going. What's what's the next five years look like for you?
1: A bunch more sweat equity, you know, and I want to make that perfectly clear too, right? Everybody just assumes, well, you're doing your entrepreneur you're, you're an entrepreneur, you're you're kicking ass and taking numbers with ortho laser. You got this great, you know, podcast that you're doing. Basically, all of the stuff that I'm doing in an entrepreneurial spirit, which is part of my brand right now is sweat equity. So I want to be very clear about this. None of this is easy and you're not going to necessarily just walk into some fortune because you put a lot of time and energy in it. So be prepared to spend that time and energy. So five years from now, I'll still be clinically practicing because at the end of the day, I think that I, I love taking care of my patients and it, and also you're you're only relevant while you're holding the knife. And as soon as you basically, you know, put away your scrubs and you say, you're not going to take care of patients clinically. I think a lot of the the opportunities that are out there within consulting and medical device and pharma go away. And so I'm very passionate about wanting to do those. I'm very hopeful that ortho laser will be an established uh, franchise across the country, providing an amazing alternative source of pain relief for patients that will have the ability to have that uh, within their communities. The ortho show, which uh, I so much uh, love and enjoy Hopefully we'll continue to increase in listenership. Last month, we had nearly 8,000 listeners and we've been really heading up in the right direction. So hopefully that will continue. And perhaps we might have room for additional podcasts that are gonna be part of our brand as we move forwards. And I'm thinking that Dr. Redler may have a seat in the chair of one of those podcasts, but a lot of really cool, innovative ideas that I wanna just keep on going. I love my family. I love my wife. I love my dog. And I wanna keep doing all the stuff that keeps me happy.
0: Scott Sigmund, the fro Siggy, it's been an incredible honor to talk to you today. You know, this is actually just about the second anniversary of the Ortho Show, which may now be one of the most popular orthopedic podcasts in the country today. A lot of that is due to your hard work, your enthusiasm, and as it turns out, having a great head of hair so that you can have that recognizable hashtag. Not everybody has a hashtag, you do. I want to thank you so much, one, for allowing you to be the interviewee today and to allow me to sit in your seat. It was a big chair, but I was thrilled to be able to do it. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, you're so welcome. You know, Dr. Redler, you know, it's through the activities of all the things that I do that I get to meet people like yourself. And we really have become fast friends, and I really appreciate your support. You're an amazing friend and colleague, all of the friends and colleagues that I've been able to meet along the way from the ortho show has just really made me a better person and it just i'm just so happy to be a part and really thank you for driving today it was a lot of fun
0: this is dr michael redler special guest host of the ortho show until next time